Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 397, recorded on Sunday, the 2nd of October. I'm Moss. At least I'm not in Florida. I'm Joe. Hey, everybody, it's Bill. First up in the news, monthly mintiness, gnome gnarliness, and KDE Kness. Ubuntu 22.10 gets fresh. Ubuntu is now on AWS. Brave blocks consent. Google kills another app. GNU toolchain moves. Matrix patches holes and new shortcut, new audacity, and more. In security and privacy, a new virus for Windows and Linux. Then in our wanderings, Joe is fixing bikes on his audio bookshelf, Moss has more classes, and Bill gets Nextcloud running. In the news, Linux Mint Monthly. From the Linux Mint blog, the code name for Linux Mint 21.1 is Vera. Documentation was written and added to the user guide to cover the following topics. How to reset a forgotten password. How to have Bluetooth disabled at boot. How to make a Windows Live USB stick or a multi-boot USB stick. Blue Man was updated to version 2.3.2 in Linux Mint 21. Timeshift 22.06.5 was backported toward Linux Mint 20.x. The changes made to the software sources and the driver manager will be ported towards Linux Mint 21. Following the upstream deprecation of apt-key, the software sources received changes to rework the way it handles PPA keys. A lot of work went into improving the driver manager, including making the manager run in user mode so you no longer need a password to launch it. They made it easier to verify your ISO before writing it to a stick. Right-click your ISO image, select Verify, and voila. Also, the USB stick formatter includes a verify function. Computer, home, trash, and network icons will, by default, be hidden on the desktop in future releases. Any comments on all this? Who uses trash anymore anyway? I do, but that's just nope. me. Right click, delete. I use both for, and I've got different purposes for each, but most of the time it's just delete. Well, I do great. generally my like um, my disks when I connect them to appear on the desktop. That is helpful. Interesting. My mute button is not working. So they'll be hidden, but are they going to be? Are you going to be able to go into the settings and re-enable them? Yeah, it says by default, so you should be able to. It's probably in that little yeah first-time boot pop-up that comes up. Yeah, there are a lot of distros that hide those things, and you're welcome to go in and re-enable. Yeah, them. that's. I don't see that as a huge problem. Yeah. All right. This Week in Gnome, from This Week in Gnome, Uh, Workbench, a sandbox to learn and prototype with Gnome Technologies, joined Gnome Circle. Newsflash feed reader was added. 
Uh, I assume that's some kind of just an RSS aggregator of some sort. Uh, Kuna, a simple screen recorder with minimal interface, was also added. Gafor, 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 a simple UML and SysML modeling tool, ditto. And several other third-party projects, including a manga reader. So, there you go. Not really much of interest to talk about there. Not really. And we're not mostly gnome types. If Norbert were here, we'd be talking for another 20 minutes. Yeah, probably. I mean, if they had something like that new splash, I'm I'm moderately interested in that. Just if it's a nice, clean RSS aggregator that integrates into GNOME, is there a way to integrate that into Cinnamon, you know, or Monte? Yeah, and screen recorders are nice if you're a podcaster. Yeah. Okay, moving on. This week in KDE. Yo, dog, I heard you wanted stability. This is from Pointy Stick Blog. KDE has slowed down their forward progress and is stressing stability in the next series of Plasma. Caden Live has now adopted K Hamburger menu. So if you turn off its normal menu bar, which remains visible by default, you can still access its full menu structure. If your keyboard has a calculator button, pressing it will now open K Calc. The global edit menu toolbar now has a nicer and smoother enter-exit animation. The plasma media player and notifications plasmoids are now grouped with system services rather than app status indicators, so your app system tray icons will always be together in a group. Without these plasmoids appearing in random positions among them, you can once again switch tabs and kick off the control tab shortcut. Now also the standard ones too. Control page up, control page down, and a couple other controls. The marks you make on the screen using the mouse mark effect now appear in screenshots and screen recordings. On the lock screen, you can now zoom in and out and clear the password field with a semicolonish control alt U keyboard shortcut. Semi-commonish control alt U keyboard shortcut. Tooltips throughout Plasma and QT quick based apps now smoothly fade in and out when they appear and disappear. You get tired of that uh, K naming theme from KDE. That's true, but at least you can identify a yeah. KDE Plasma. That's always been the good thing about about the K. You know that you're you know it's going to be a KDE app. The other thing is the hamburger menu. That ten, that tends to be a point of contention among a lot of people, and it's good that it's an option because I there are some apps where a hamburger menu is a little more appropriate, where you want more screen, screen real estate for the elements that you use a lot, but then just being forced to use a hamburger menu is probably not always the best option. I'm not sure if I, I don't hate them, but there are some places where you just, where they just cram everything into a hamburger menu. And it seems 
it seems a little convoluted at that point. You know, you really have to nav- navigate a labyrinth of submenus to find the thing that you want, you know, whereas if they had it sort of laid out in a regular menu, it would have been a lot easier to deal with. But in this case, it looks like Canaan Live is giving it as an option, which is, again, one of the things KDE is good at is is giving you the option to move forward. But at the same time, if you like the old way, you can have that too. You know, they don't force any um, user interface or any uh, huge changes on the user. Yeah, I don't use Plasma often. It's either in an occasional install of Neon or an occasional install of Open Mandriva. But I'm sure that once these updates get done, uh, it will make it easier to use for me. Um, I found out why my mute button isn't working, and that's because I just reinstalled Mint, and I haven't made the mute button switch yet. Yep, you got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ubuntu 22.10 Kinetic Kudu Beta released with GNOME 43, Linux kernel 5.19 from 9 to 5 Linux. Featuring the latest GNOME 43 desktop environment, Ubuntu 22.10 Beta comes with Pipewire as the default sound system, which is accompanied by WirePlumber as its session and policy manager. GCC 12 is the default system compiler. Support for the WebP image format out of the box, as well as updated components and apps. But the most interesting part of this release is the fact that Ubuntu Unity is now available as an official flavor, featuring the good old Unity 7 desktop environment on top of an Ubuntu 22.10 base. Canonical decided to accept Ubuntu Unity as an official flavor starting with Kinetic Kudu release in late October. That was a little redundant. The other official Ubuntu flavors ship with an updated graphical environments too, including KDE Plasma 5.25 for Kubuntu and Ubuntu Studio, XSCE 4.17 for Xubuntu, LXQT 1.1.0 for Lubuntu, Budgie 10.6.2 for Ubuntu Budgie, Mate 1.28 for Ubuntu Mate, and UKUI 3.1 for Ubuntu Chillin. Under the hood, Ubuntu 22.10 Beta is powered by Linux kernel 5.19, which features support for AMD's secure nested paging feature, initial support for Lung Sun's Lung Arch, RISC ISA CPU architecture, support for Z standard compressed firmware files, support for the ARM scalable matrix extension, SME, and many other changes. As mentioned before, Ubuntu 22.10 will hit the streets on October 20th, 2022. Until then, you can take the beta version out for a spin on your personal computer by downloading the live ISO images from the official website, where you'll also find beta versions of the Kubuntu, Xubuntu, Lubuntu, Ubuntu Studio, Ubuntu Budgie, Ubuntu Unity, Ubuntu Mate, and Ubuntu Chillin' official flavors. Are we excited for Ubuntu? Um, I want to be, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about unity. I mean, the fact that we're just yeah, calling it Ubuntu unity. Yeah. <laughs> it's not Ubuntu unity remix anymore. It's Ubuntu unity. And that is, I mean, if somebody would have said back in the 15 dot whatever days that we would be experiencing something like this now, you know, people would have thought you were nuts, but, uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm kind of looking forward to it. I'm not going to I'm not going to update any of my per, uh production machines to it, but 
I'll probably run it in a couple of virtual machines, especially the Unity edition, because that's that's the first official version, if I'm correct. That's going to be the first uh, blessed version of Ubuntu Unity, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the things... Anybody that's using a derivative of YouTube, or I about said YouTube, uh, Ubuntu, you know, these things, they kind of matter. Um, it's it's just not, I, you know, Linux has just become well, changes something. Changes in the base matter a lot. It does matter a lot. Um, but we've we've grown to into this expectation of everything just working now and it's and as a result there's less drama and i don't know maybe that's taken away from the the spectacular nature of yeah well i do pay attention to ubuntu when it actually has something that comes downstream that um has some kind of impact on mint gnome 43 is not going to have an impact on mint no um now when they when snaps became a norm with Ubuntu, that did impact Mint. So I, I did keep track of that. But really, the rest of it, eh. Well, we are using Mutter now, right? So um, as Mutter sort of evolves into something that works just perfectly with Wayland, you know, and then we start to migrate over... Um, that 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 might be interesting. It's not really interesting to me because I just want it to work. And as such, I'm not even using Wayland yet because I don't want to futz around with OBS. Well, I guess the other thing that I'll keep track on this will be Pipewire. Pipewire, yeah. Yeah, see how that impacts. So. It probably will. I mean, Pipewire is probably something that should have happened a while ago. So are we not using Pipewire in uh, Mint 21 here? or uh, No, I don't think so. I think it's still... Because it pulled Pipewire. Pulse Audio and um, what, what's that other one? I had, to, I had to install Pipewire Pulse in order to get Audacity working on this thing. Mm. So I don't know. Anyway, moving on. Ubuntu is now available on AWS. And this is from TechRadar Pro. And um, what did Londoner uh, see the contributor yep, on this? Put it there. Okay. So Ubuntu Workspaces on AWS, a fully managed virtual desktop infrastructure, VDI, is now generally available on the public cloud platform. This marks the first time that a virtual Linux OS desktop has been available on AWS, which has previously only offered iOS and Windows operating systems. Wow. Thank God. Well, it's a move in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, they're... Considering about 80% of... Tongue isn't working. About 80% of AWS is Linux anyhow. They should have done this a long time ago. So this is to be clear. This is if you were if you was to build a cloud-based desktop application, this is what this would be for. We've already had well, 
cloud-based server Linux on AWS. This is just desktop. Is that, am I right in that? No, I, I, I don't work with AWS a lot. But um, this sounds like it's the first time that out of the box um, a desktop has been offered, a virtual desktop has been offered. But if Linux was on there previously, it doesn't really matter what version, then you could have just, you know, installed a desktop and installed a way to view it. Either, um, what, RDP or X2Go or just BNC? I mean, you could have set it up on your own, but it is nice to have something that's built in. I'm not sure. I, I, I use cloud-based machines but it's always server based i'm not sure what the use case is for for this but that's i'm sure that there is a lot of use cases where this would be useful but uh yeah cool one step closer to full world domination well just setting up a thin client and being able to use it you know well essentially from anywhere and maybe having more power than whatever device you have on the road. I know people that do run servers, but they've got desktops installed on them. That way they're just not comfortable with completely administering the thing from a terminal. So Okay. Okay. Brave browser to start blocking annoying cookie consent banners. Finally. From Bleeping Computer, the Brave browser will soon allow users to block annoying and potentially privacy-harming cookie consent banners on all websites they visit. If you visited Bleeping Computer from Europe, you may have noticed an annoying cookie consent prompt asking if you would like to accept data collecting cookies from our advertisers. These notifications are incredibly annoying but have become necessary to do business online to comply with data protection regulations like GDPR. In some cases, however, these banners can serve as trackers themselves as they engage in a privacy-breaching data exchange before the user even has a chance to opt out. Secondly, it is widely accepted that the consent prompts severely disrupt the browsing experience as users have to deal with them almost every time they visit a website. Brave will now proactively detect and block the cookie consent banners to deal with both of these issues, removing both a distraction and a potential privacy risk for users. The rollout of the new system has already started in Brave Nightly and is scheduled to reach the stable branch on version 1.45 in October, starting with Windows and Android. iOS will follow soon afterwards. Now, I hope Firefox is working on this. Yeah, oh, well, I hope all browsers are working on this because it does get annoying after a while saying, no, I don't want cookies. I'm, or Google doesn't care. Why would they put it in Chrome? Yeah. I've been using well, that uh, I don't care about cookies extension for some time, yeah. and that seems to work just fine. There's some news mm. about that, though. Somebody bought that for a ridiculous amount of money, and... We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's all there really is to say about that. All right. 
Google is shutting down Stadia. Are we surprised? Oh, God, no. <laughs> From nope, the verge. Google is shutting down Stadia, its cloud gaming service. The service will remain live for players until January 18th, 2023. Google will be refunding all Stadia hardware purchased through the Google Store, as well as all the games and add-on content purchased from the Stadia Store. Google expects those refunds will be completed in mid-January. Quote, a few years ago, we also launched a consumer gaming service, Stadia. End quote. Stadia Vice President and GM Phil Harrison said in a blog post, quote, and while Stadia's approach to streaming games for consumers was built on a strong technology foundation, it hasn't gained the traction with users that we've expected. So we've made the difficult decision to begin winding down our Stadia streaming service, end quote. Employees on the Stadia team will be distributed to other parts of the company. Harrison says Google sees opportunities to apply Stadia's technology to other parts of Google, like YouTube, Google Play, and its AR efforts. And the company also plans to make it available to our industry partners, which aligns with where we see the future of gaming headed, end quote, he wrote. Google detailed some of the finer points of the shutdown in an FAQ. Refunds will automatically be made through the Google and Stadia stores, and you won't have to return any hardware. Stadia Pro subscriptions will not be eligible for a refund, but you will not be charged during the shutdown period and can access games you might have redeemed as a pro user until everything is wound down. Google has closed the Stadia store so you can't buy games or in-game transactions. The writing has been on the wall for Stadia for a while now, most recently when Logitech announced its new cloud gaming handheld last week, and Stadia was one of the few cloud gaming services not mentioned. But Stadia has been facing rumors of its demise practically from the start. Google has a habit of killing projects only a few years after they launch, and Stadia, a cloud gaming service from a company with few ties in the gaming industry, seemed like a prime candidate for an early demise. Yeah, it sucks that Stadia is closing down. Um, you know, I never bought into it, mostly because I expected this to happen. And I don't have a whole lot of time for gaming anymore. But, um, <clears throat> I mean, the people that have had the service are going to make out pretty well. They're basically getting the hardware that they purchased for free. They're getting all of their games refunded. Can't really complain about that. Now, hopefully they're getting the full price and not the current price. So hopefully they're getting the price that they paid and they can go somewhere else and buy the same game again. But I really don't see how this is a loss for the people that used Stadia. Yep. The only thing Google is keeping is subscription revenue. Yep. I, I'm wondering what will end up like. I got one of those. Uh, oh, they early on. If you bought a copy of um, what was it, the big game that came out, uh, Cyberpunk, uh, they sent you a free what it, what was a, uh, a game controller, a Stadia game controller, and a Chromecast Ultra. So I wonder how they'll handle things like that. Presumably, they I won't get any money for that. But that Chromecast that Chromecast Ultra was a hundred dollar device by itself. So I've already not lost any money, but I'm I'm curious as to how they'll handle stuff like that. Presumably they won't at all, but yeah, I think that's the only game I've ever actually bought outright. The kids were using. Did you play the, Cyberpunk? 
I bought it for the kids to play. Uh, and my son, the oldest of my replacement kids, uh, like went upstairs at three o'clock, came back downstairs at like nine o'clock, said he beat it. So I don't know. These kids well, I heard that, it, that when it first came out, it was excessively glitchy. Yeah. So, but I mean, if you're on a, if you got your game on a cloud platform and you need to push updates to it, that was the cool thing about this was you just open the browser and play, or you you start up the Chromecast that was the the Ultra had the Stadia kind of built into it. If you turned on the Stadia controller, it would just take the Chromecast and go directly to your your uh, Stadia interface and play the games. And you didn't have that long update process that you do with the uh, consoles. You know, there there was a lot of advantages to it. There really was. The now, problem just is internet infrastructure. And that Stadia controller does it work with other devices? I'm, I have not played with it. Um, I'm hoping it does because in order to Presumably, if it connects to a uh, Chromecast, it's got to be it's got to be Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or something. I wouldn't think they'd go with anything strange and proprietary. But uh, you know, I'm gonna play around with that when I get time, and then I'll I'll mention that on a future episode. So watch the space. I think uh, I think that would be useful if it does because it is a fairly solid controller it's more akin to the playstation controller in terms of size and the layout of the controls and that so it's a little smaller than the xbox controller but i mean we got it for free and that the chromecast will stay working you know so that's still somewhat of a value yeah in my opinion do you use the chromecast i mean most of your tvs these days are, are smart tvs they're really not. So. <laughs> the, those apps on those smart TVs are junk. They we stopped relying on them because it, it was every other day I was getting a phone call. Hey, there was an update and need to sign back into this silly app, and I just got I've sick had of that it. Problem. Well, the the uh, the old Vizio I had was having that problem, and then the old Samsung did too. So we ended up going. The TV in the living room is Samsung, and then we bought a a uh, NVIDIA Shield for that, and the NVIDIA Shield is just a flawless device. And then the TVs the kids are using are both, they both have Fire TV built in. Mm. I mean, and that is what it is. It's about the same um, performance you would expect from a Fire Stick, except it's literally built right into the TV. Yeah, I guess my, my TV is only, I think, two, three years old at this point. Yeah. So, and it's a Roku TV. But eventually, one day, it'll quit getting updates or something silly like that. And then I'll have to hook something up to it. Okay, yeah. Those ones that got well, the Roku built in, just like the Fire TVs, you know, that's an actually, you're getting a an actual Android plus Roku or plus, you know, a Amazon experience, you know, you got some of these, like the Samsungs, they've all got their like third party thing going on. And those apps are not always made by the same developers that make the Android apps because it is an Android. It's like a Minix type based thing 
that uh well i intentionally have a stupid tv and i do all my streaming <sighs> via browser that's what i want i want a stupid tv you that's know, 60 it, inches wide yeah it's difficult to buy modern tvs that are stupid i know it's true. Uh, you, can you, you disable you really the can. smartness at all yeah, yes you can you don't just have not to use, use smartness. It. yeah you, you just hook up to the hdmi and that's it and that's exactly what we do and you don't ever have okay. to connect it to wi-fi if you don't want to well, what's the next story, Bill? Okay. Um, GNU Toolchain move, uh, plans move to the Linux Foundation's infrastructure. This is from Pharonix. The GCC compiler and related GNU Toolchain infrastructure has long been hosted by Sourceware.org that has been sponsored by Red Hat the past two decades. But now the GNU Toolchain infrastructure, GTI, project is being est- uh, established as it works to leverage Linux Foundation's IT services to provide more robust and secure infrastructure for these critical open source projects. That was quite a sentence. <sighs> I know. I had to really <laughs> tighten the lips. Um, yeah. With the Linux Foundation IT services doing a stellar job hosting kernel.org and related web server infrastructure for the Linux kernel, the various parties involved in the GNU toolchain have been sorting out a similar setup. I heard about this on Linux Action News, and I was a little I was a little puzzled as to what is the real reason for a move like this. Yeah, they said that it actually angered some of their contributors. Yeah, I mean, if you had a real good reason, like like they were shutting down the you know the the technology that was being used but from what I, it just appears as though GNU just doesn't want their stuff on Red Hat's infrastructure anymore it's just they, I think Red Hat has decided that they aren't going to supply enough funding to sourceware for the projects that yeah, they have in okay. mind Well there you go and Linux Foundation has more money to throw around Well, let's let's just hope that this this turns out to be positive change for everybody that's involved. We we do in the Linux world still uh, lean on the GNU toolchain pretty heavily, you know. Okay, moving on. Upgrade now to address E two E E vulnerabilities in Matrix JS SDK, Matrix iOS SDK, and Matrix Android SDK two. This is from Matrix Blog. Two critical severity vulnerabilities in end-to-end encryption were found in the SDKs which power Element, Beeper, Cine, Shieldychat, Circuli, Synod IM, and any other clients based on Matrix JS SDK, Matrix iOS SDK, or Matrix Android SDK 2. These have now been fixed, and we have not seen evidence of them being exploited in the wild. All of the critical vulnerabilities require cooperation from a malicious home server to be exploited. Please upgrade immediately in order to be protected against these vulnerabilities. Clients with other encryption implementations, including Hydrogen, Element, X, Nico, Fluffy Chat, Siphon, Timmy, Gomux, and Tantalaman are not affected. This is not a protocol bug. Matrix has an outgoing series of public independent audits 
booked to help guard against future vulnerabilities. We will also be making some protocol changes in the future to provide additional layers of protection. This resolves the pre-disclosure issued on September 23rd. Okay, so there was a security vulnerability, but now it's fixed. Keep your stuff updated. Patch your stuff. Right. Okay, Shotcut 22.09 video editor adds initial support for WebP animations and new video filters from 9 to 5 Linux. Shotcut 22.09 is here three months after Shotcut 22.06, the last stable release of the software, and introduces initial support for reading WebP animations to new video filters, fisheye and GPS graphic, snapping to the playhead to keyframes, and the ability to display audio clips without album art. Also new in this release is the GoPro 2 GPX utility that lets you export a GPX file from a GoPro video via Properties Export GPX, a new reset option in settings to help you reset all the settings, including the hidden ones, as well as new alpha operation, reverse, and invert parameters to the Mask Draw video filter. Another interesting change in Shotcut 2209 is the ability to drag, scroll, slash, pan by pressing the middle mouse button on the keyframes, timeline, and the built-in player when zoomed in. Moreover, the new Shotcut version has an Actions and shot Shortcuts entry in the Help menu to provide users with a unified action search and shortcut editor and also replace the old keyboard shortcuts menu item. On top of all that, Shotcut 22.09 improves support for custom video transitions by implementing a quick preview to transition properties and a favorite button in the transition properties and the mask from file video filter, along with the ability to list all the files in the transitions folder in the transition properties, the mask from file video folder, and the slideshow generator dialog. Also improved is the filters picker, which gains support for a small animated icon and translatable keywords to facilitate search. Various bugs were addressed to improve the move track up or move track down functions, old film scratches video filter, file open MLT XML as a clip menu item, text rich filter, and other functionality. Also worth mentioning is the fact that the new Shotcut release deprecates and hides the lens correction video filter due to its low quality and the introduction of the fisheye video filter. You can read the full release notes on the project's GitHub page for more details on these changes. Under the hood, Shotcut 22.09 is bundled with FFmpeg 5.1, David 1.0, AV1 decoder, AOM 3.4.0 AV1 encoder, LibVPX 1.12.0 VP8-9 encoder, VMAF 2.3.1 video quality assessment algorithm, and GlaxNimate 0.5.1 SVG software. There are some tongue twisters for you. You betcha. You did good. Now, do uh, any of us... I'll do be any here of us, all week. Yep. <laughs> do any of us use Shotcut? I was just going to say, I admittedly, I've never even heard of this but after going and looking at the website and then taking a good look at the uh um wow the picture on the front page here it looks an awful like open shot does anybody know is it based is one based on the other or they just happen to look that way 
Well, I don't know. But this, I don't. I try. It's um. But this looks. I mean, it. It almost kind of even looks like a. Like a middle ground between Open Shot and Caden Live in some way. It looks a little bit more robust than Open Shot. Yeah, but, if I've needed to do any video editing, I use Caden Live. So I don't know. Not the most robust, but I mean, Caden Live. I don't. I, Caden Live has got enough in it yeah. to bewilder me when I go. I, most of the time, everything I need to do, I can do with Open Shot. And that's seen a lot of forward moving. Well, there's a lot of discussion in Google on what's better and which to choose. And, uh, of course, they're all coming before the current version of Shotcut. Yeah. I'm just thankful that the, for all projects like this, usable software that's open source, you know, and available on Linux. So... All right, let's move on to Audacity, another piece of multimedia software that we rely on heavily. Audacity 3.2 released with real-time VST3 effects, FFmpeg 5.0, and Wavepack support. This is from 9to5Linux. Audacity 3.2 is almost here, and I think as of date, it is here. Correct. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, yeah, it is. Yes, it is. I have it. After the Audacity 3.1 series, and it introduces several existing new feature, features like real-time effects for the audio units, LADSPA, LV2, and VST3 plugins, support for VST3 effects, support for the Wavepack open audio compression format, as well as support for the latest FFmpeg 5.0 multimedia framework. As part of the new real-time effects feature, Audacity 3.2 adds a new effects button to the tracks menu to allow you to place real-time effects. In addition, the effects menu received a new sorting, and you'll now find other sorting and grouping options in the effects preferences. Here's the real-time effects feature in action. The UI received various changes as well, such as the merge of the mixer bar with the meter bars, a quick audio sharing feature, and new audio setup button by default that replaces the device toolbar. You'll still be able to re-add the device toolbar via the view toolbars menu. Among other noteworthy changes, Audacity can now be compiled without Jack support on GNU slash Linux systems. MPEG-123 or MPG-123 is now used as the default MP3 importer instead of MAD. There's support for XDG directories on GNU slash Linux systems and plugins are now automatically scanned, tested, and enabled when Audacity starts. Of course, Audacity 3.2 also fixes various issues to improve M4A, AAC support to let you set the 
bit rate between 98 and 160 kilobytes per second for mono and between 196 and 320 kilobytes per second for stereo. Importing MP3 files, batch processing, GTK packaging in app images. There's a big one. Uh, Audacity's license was updated as well as part of the major release for VST3 support, such as the Audacity binaries are now licensed under the GNU General Public License version 3, while most of the code files remain under GPL version 2 or later. This is a huge update. It, um, I haven't updated to it yet, from what, but from what I've heard from other users, it almost warrants a new ver, uh, major version number, which was why I was kind of surprised when 3.1 came out that this stuff, it must just not have been ready. Well, I'm using it now, and it's uh, a different thing. From I think the last version I used was 2.4.2. Yeah. And it's a big difference. There was a lot of change. Well, I'm running 3.1.3 right now, and that's enough of a big change because they did away with the uh, time shift button, and now that's just sort of incorporated into the top of the waveform. You just grab the waveform and just move it back and forth, which means you can leave the select button on and just you you have the functionality of both without switching back and forth so i can see the usefulness in that um i can also see how that's gonna take some time for a lot of people that have been using audacity for a long time to get used to but uh i mean the real-time effects feature though i've not had a i've not had a chance to play with it yet but it seems like a feature that serious users had been asking for for a long time and it i can see from what i understand it'll be really useful for people that just use the same features or the same effects on every project that they do they can they can just apply those effects right there as they're recording or as they're working you know without having to go through and select the track that you're working on and then apply the effect to it it's actually being applied in real time so i mean the, the, it's pretty major this puts uh i've heard it said that it puts audacity up there on the level as uh many of your more professional audio workstations that are out there yeah i'm going to have a learning process figuring out how to save the show file today <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll see it seems you guys like, are talking about it being on like 3.2. I just looked at my version number for Audacity, and I'm at like 2.3. Uh, yeah, I used 2.3.2 on a few version on a few systems. I got the latest I've used hours 2.4.2. You would have to use and the flat pack to get it, the updated one. Okay, well that wraps up our news. Why don't we move on to security and privacy? Never before seen malware has infected hundreds of Linux and Windows devices. This is from Ars Technica. Researchers have revealed a never before seen piece of cross-platform malware 
that has infected a wide range of Linux and Windows devices, including small office routers, free BSD boxes, and large enterprise servers. Black Lotus Labs, the research arm of security firm Lumen, is calling the malware chaos, a word that repeatedly appears in function name certificates and file names it uses. Chaos emerged no later than April 16th, when the first cluster of control servers went live in the wild. From June through mid-July, researchers found hundreds of unique IP addresses representing compromised chaos devices. Staging servers used to infect new devices have mushroomed in recent months, growing from 39 in May to 93 in August. As of Tuesday, the number reached 111. Black Lotus has observed interactions with these staging servers from both embedded Linux devices as well as enterprise servers, including one in Europe that was hosting an instance of GitLab. There are more than 100 unique samples in the wild. The potency of the chaos malware stems from a few factors, Black Lotus Labs researchers wrote in a Wednesday morning blog post. First, it is designed to work across several architectures, including ARM, Intel, i386, MIPS, and PowerPC. In addition to both Windows and Linux operating systems, second, unlike large-scale ransomware distribution botnets like Emotet that leverage spam to spread and grow, chaos propagates through known CVEs and brute-forced as well as stolen SSH keys. CVEs refer to the mechanism used to track specific vulnerability. Wednesday's report referred to only a few, including CVE 2017-17-215 and CVE 2022-305-525, affecting firewalls sold by Huawei, and CVE 2022-1388, an extremely severe vulnerability in load balancers, firewalls, and network inspection gear sold by F5. SSH infections using password brute forcing and stolen keys also allow chaos to spread from machine to machine inside an infected network. Chaos also has various capabilities, including enumerating all devices connected to an infected network, running remote shells that allow trackers to execute commands, and loading additional modules. Combined with the ability to run on such a wide range of devices, these capabilities have led Black Lotus Labs to suspect chaos is the work of a cyber criminal actor that is cultivating a network of infected devices to leverage for initial access, CDOS attacks, and crypto mining, company researchers said. Black Lotus Labs believes chaos is an offshoot of Kaji, Kaiji, a piece of botnet software Linux-based AMD and i386 servers for performing DDoS attacks. Since coming into its own, Chaos has gained a host of new features, including modules for new architectures, the ability to run on Windows, and the ability to spread through vulnerability exploitation and SSH key harvesting. Infected IP addresses indicate that Chaos infections are most heavily concentrated in Europe with smaller hotspots in North and South America and Asia-Pacific. That's interesting. I mean, wow. Somebody's out there doing a lot of development to make it that cross-platform. They should be working for someone making a crap ton of money. Well, maybe they intend to make a crap ton of money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, their best bet. Um, 
Uh, the DDoS attacks, I don't think, will profit them much. But if they were to use all of these infected systems and start crypto mining, that could be very profitable for them. I don't know. And it just seems like a brilliant person used their powers for evil. Well, that about ends our security for this episode. Let's move on. Biweekly monitorings. Uh, well, I've been really busy with school. I've had three work days in just these two weeks. I go home and I'm too dead to do anything else for two days. One of those days was sixth grade math and science, and they actually had me teaching, not just keeping the class in tow while they did pre-assigned stuff. Before you start shedding alligator tears for me, remember that I'm almost 70 years old and have a large variety of health issues, as is normal for old men. Thursday was the sixth anniversary of my wife getting off the plane from Canada. She hasn't killed me yet. We celebrated one of those two events. She's missed you with every bullet so far. Yeah. But At with every miss, she, she gets me. a little bit better. Gets a little closer. At least I know she misses me. <laughs> <laughs> I have regressed both laptops and my studio desktop to Mint 20.3. There have been just enough tiny glitches and issues to make me yearn for the good old days of Una, so here I am. It does not make much sense to revert my wife's laptop or the TV box at present, so I will wait on that until it does. DistroHopper's Digest 36 is out. This was the first episode we did after Tony has moved to emeritus status. It's just me, Dale, and Josh Hawk now. It was a good show. We also have two episodes with over 1,000 views. Never thought it would get here. We're averaging over 850 downloads per episode, all stats thanks to archive.org. My 77th Full Circle Weekly News was released today. It's number 281. Thanks to Leo for passing that job on to me. Well that's done. about it for me. Comments? Well, well done on full circle, by the way. I, uh, how I are you enjoying that. the subbing? Oh, yeah. Um, the high school sub, it depends on what class I have. Uh, the, the English class, I, I've, I've been in this one English class three times now. Hmm. And uh, there are definitely people in there that, that come in saying, oh, wow, you're my favorite sub. Uh, there's one or two that say, uh, you're already better than Mrs. Rogers. <laughs> Ouch. That, that you, heard, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, it, it's for the most as part long, fun. As long as when you're subbing, you're, you're plugging Mintcast, you're doing <laughs> it right. These kids all have Chromebooks, and they do not even know the name of their operating system. Yikes. You should correct that. Immediately. Now, mind you, we have mentioned a certain friend of mine who just turned 13 and is now a full Ubuntu member with his distro being made full status in October. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. You should just take over that news. English class and just give a dissertation on, on Linux. Well, they haven't put me in the computer lab yet. Hmm. <laughs> like I said, take over the English class and just give a dissertation on Linux. 
Tell them we don't have much to go over today since I'm subbing. So today well, we're going to talk the, about the Linux. Here's your assignment. Mrs. Rogers has been very good about having well-planned lessons already there for me to do, and I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Uh, there have been some classes I go into where they just expect that the students aren't going to learn anything anyway. Yeah, so no, I, I, I subbed for a while, like 10 years ago, and one, I absolutely hated it. Two, yeah, the teachers, I never really had one that left a, a lesson plan. It was basically I was there to babysit for an hour. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of my three uh, subbing jobs in the last two weeks was a sixth grade math and science. And I was amazed he did have a good lesson plan, but he expected me to teach it. And that's the first time in all my subbing I've been expected to teach the class. Mm. So that that was exciting and scary and all those things. <laughs> Just as long as you started out with, okay, have you guys subscribed to Mintcast yet? <laughs> well, if you guys well, really I like actually, me, you I, can uh, get I, more of me I on Mintcast. I actually Mintcast. have picked up some subscribers on my YouTube page. Well, cool, cool. <laughs> cool okay, well. Um I've got I have not gotten a lot done in the last few weeks. Uh, and you know, I kind of looked down and then looked back up and two weeks had kind of blown by. A lot of that was because work was insanely busy. I mean, um, my my manager at work, his his wife is extremely ill and in Boston. So he, he's been bouncing back and forth between Boston and Texas. And now his wife is in the hospital. So he's in Boston and I'm doing his job. If anybody else is out, I'm doing their job. There was one day where I worked like 15 hours straight on one issue, on one phone call, and did not get time to do anything else. And that's a whole nother story, and it was completely miserable. And let me tell you, after 15 hours of grinding away at something, you are done. You are tired, and you just want to go to bed. Um, but other than that, uh, I did have a lot of problems with, uh, my bike and I, that I needed to fix. I have two bikes that I, that I go between as one breaks and I fix the other. So the bike that I had been using recently got a flat back tire, you know, not a big deal. So I replaced the inner tube. And then when I remounted the tire, I couldn't get it to sit straight. Uh, I got out my truing tool and went looking. And what I found was two broken spokes. Um, so there isn't a whole lot you can do about that except buy more spokes and replace them. I'm not quite sure on the, the millimeter size yet, but I will be finding out. So I put that bike away for now and got out the other one. This is the one where I replaced the real wheel as the old one had similar issues with spokes and was so bent that it couldn't really be used. Um, so it could not, you could not true it. Um, I found out that the rear tube on that one also had a hole in it. So I replaced that as well. It also needed a cable replacement for the front shifter, which had rusted up and just wouldn't move anymore. Um, I had not wanted, done one of those before, but it turned out to be pretty easy. Um, I was able to get a good ride out of that bike, but then the next day, the brand new tube in the rear tire was flat again. Uh, that was a bit disheartening, uh, but the leak was slow enough that I could fill up the tire and, and get 10 miles in. But then the next time I filled up the tire, it wouldn't hold any air at all. Um, so I replaced it again, and after mounting it to the bike, um, first thing that happens after I fill it up is a pop hiss. 
and I had to replace it again. Um, I, I checked very closely, but there was nothing inside the wheel or on the rim that would cause the issue. And it looked like my brand new tire just, or my brand new inner tube just had some dry rot. And so on goes another tube. Um, that one has worked so far, but man, it was a pain in the butt to get the bikes moving again. And now I still need to try and order some spokes and get those other two wheels fixed. Um, but at least, you know, it's not, it's something I haven't done before. So I am learning something new doing it and yeah, it's stressful, but it's also enjoyable. Now, last show I talked about an application called audio bookshelf. I'd only been using it for about a day at that point and I hadn't had much of a chance to, you know, give a for an informed review. So now that's what I'm going to do. Um, I've liked using it so far. I haven't had any issues with transitioning from Wi-Fi to data, and I have made sure to do a bit of moving around town, and it, it has worked perfectly. Um, it buffers enough that no issues have come up. I, I know that that will change if I go to a dead zone, but as long as I plan ahead, I can download the entire book and avoid that issue. Um, it did take me a while to go through my entire collection of books and get the naming conventions properly sorted so that audio bookshelf would read them cor correctly. And I'm certain that I'll keep finding some that will need further correction, but so far so good. Um, only once after putting in the corrections did a series of books not show up and I had to go in and cause everything looked correct. I had to go in and change the name of the author by adding like a one on the end or something and then letting it pick it up that way and then changing it back again. And then it picked up the entire series, put it in the proper order and everything worked just fine. Now my only real complaint with the application is that the Android app doesn't have a widget. Um, I have to go in and find the application every time. I have created a shortcut, but it's not the same as being able to see all the stats from the main screen of my phone. And I'd love to be able to replace the one for, um, what is it, uh, Listen Audiobook Player. I also like that I can easily switch between devices and pick up right where I left off. Because it's, you know, that server client model instead of, you know, downloading everything to the device using um, BT Sync and using it that way, I just use the server. I can just go to that page and kick off if I want to. Um, my back and shoulder are starting to heal up and I'm glad I took things a little easier for a while, and, but I'm really ready to start lifting heavy again. Um, I will take things slow and build back up, but I miss the bench press and I miss heavy curls. I'm also looking for a better way to track my overall progress, and I'm looking for an open source application that will help do that job. Let me know if anyone has any suggestions on what I could use there. Um, I have not progressed on my next custom Bluetooth headset adventures, but I am waiting on some cables to show up from China. I do have enough to get started and should be doing the measuring and designing I just keep getting busy. Um, I did find my USB controllers that I can use with, with the Batacera build that I have on the 1GX. And I've also ordered a set of Razer Jungle Cat controllers, which I should be able to use with the 1GX and on my cell phone. But I will need to design some, adapt some adapters for the mounting system for both the phone and the laptop. And I'll tell you about that next time well hopefully next time i'll have it set up but i should have received it by then and i'll be able to pull this off and 
hopefully attach the Razer Jungle Cats to the sides of this little laptop. And then also, uh, because it was made for older phones, I'll have to make adapters so that my phone and the case will be able to slide the, um, the controls on there. They are Bluetooth, so there will be some latency, and that's a thing all on its own. But um, I wanted something that I could use on both, and most of the ones without latency are all USB-C and mount directly to a phone. So the Razer Jungle Cat, yes, it's older, but I, I think for my use case, it's going to be the best bet. That's really all I've been up to. Unless you guys got anything you want to add or questions. On to you, Bill. Well, the only thing I've accomplished this last fortnight, aside from work, has been the migration of the Mintcast NextCloud server from my Rock Pro 64 to a proper x86 machine. Uh, a few we weeks ago, with Moss's guidance, I ordered and received a three Think Center M93 complete with a fourth gen i7. Uh, I added 32 gigabytes of ECC RAM again with Moss's guidance because apparently I just am incapable of buying RAM. Um, an SSD, a Samsung SSD, and two, and the two two terabyte Iron Wolf NAS drives that held the data directory that was being used in the rock pro for the next cloud installation that i had at the time this is where the problems came full circle uh the main reason i lamented and subsequently switched from the arm-based pine 64 system is because at several times while having the two nas drives installed the system returned io errors and even uh, returned some errors about some corruption going on with the mirrored copy. And it was always the second drive, uh, SDB. What I had going on was just a ZFS. Well, in the beginning, I had a ButterFS mirror, and it uh, it fouled out the second drive, or, or it uh, corrupted the second drive. I didn't know about it for two weeks. Uh, I still had a working copy because it was it was a mirror, like a, a software RAID mirror. And I at the time, I blamed it on ButterFS, so I switched over to ZFS. And it was a bit of a better experience, but at a couple of points over the last year or so, I was getting... Uh, I was getting errors on the ZFS side as well, too, and it was always on SDB. Um, the thing about ZFS is when you have errors, uh, ZFS will fix those errors a little bit more uh, automatically, a little bit more intelligently, and you have to worry about it a little less. Uh, at the time, I blamed the problem on a combination of, you know, the dodgy support perceived dodgy support on the ARM platform, as well as a lack of ECC RAM, which is highly recommended when using ZFS due to its high dependence on memory caching. Which means, yeah, I, it, if I understand it correctly, and somebody might write in and, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, but with a default setup with ZFS, it does an awful lot of caching to the memory before it does any writes. You know, it's it's another copy on write file system, but it it just relies on the memory that much more uh, to be more performant, I suppose. And if you have errors to the data while it's sitting in memory, it'll write uh, it'll write the wrong stuff to the hard drive and you won't know that you've got uh, any data problems because you're writing the data that the drive, that the file system received from memory. That's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of detail, but I mean, it, it, it relies on ECC a little bit more than anything else does because ECC memory has a little bit more, um, stands for error correcting code, by the way. It's one more chip on the memory stick that applies a little bit of uh, a little bit of checksumming before it actually gets written to the disk. So you're you've got that much more data integrity uh, checks going on before it actually gets written. But ZFS relies on the memory more than anything else. Well. I found that after attaching the drives to the Think Center, I was getting the exact same errors after setting up another Z pool and, you know, basically doing the things the same way as I was before. And it was the exact same thing, the same drive. So um, I thought maybe, well, maybe I'm, maybe I've just got a bad drive. So I ran a smart test and it was doing fine until about halfway through it started giving me io errors and then uh, i did a bad blocks test and it did the exact same thing so at this point i'm thinking that it's a controller issue um that's at that point i decided to remove the drive and just create a storage pool on the single drive Replace the bad drive and add the new drive to the pool as a mirrored device later after i receive a replacement uh, this is actually relatively easy to do with CFS because you you just kind of you create the pool on the one drive and then later on you can uh, create the same pool on the other. Uh, you create the same pool on the other drive and then you add, attach it to that mirrored pool and then it does what it calls resilvering, where it basically just kind of incorporates it into the storage pool and now you've got some raid going on um it's a little more complicated than that but it's really not it's really not that difficult um i see now that perhaps i was wrong to blame the problem on the rock pro but i'm still not convinced the device didn't somehow cause the controller to fail in the drive i say this because the iron wolf has an excellent track record for reliability in the server NAS storage space, and I also have three 12 terabyte Iron Wolves running in that Jellyfin server, and that's been chugging away for two years without a single error, not even the smallest little error. And it does a scrub once a week, so you know I'm I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of giving Seagate and the Iron Wolf line a little bit more leeway, a little bit more rope than I am the Rock Pro, and that might not be that might not be fair, but you know these Rock Pros are kind of marketed as as uh, project devices. They're not really meant to be uh, 
consumer grade or even business grade devices to be relied on for uh, important infrastructure. They're really just marketed. And the software that goes on them is, is sort of marketed as project grade type stuff, you know. So um, whether it's fair or not, I'm kind of leaning towards Seagate a little more. Um, there's just no way to know for sure what caused the failure. So I'll just replace the drive, the drive and move on. Happily, the, the drive is still covered under warranty. Uh, getting that process rolling was relatively uh, simple matter of going to the Seagate website, creating a, an account and then creating a uh, return ticket. They emailed me the, you know, the, the packing label and then all the instructions and everything. The only thing is I have to pay for the postage to send this thing back to them and then they'll send me a replacement as soon as they receive it, which seems to be about, about the normal way of doing things. Um, I'll count, I'll comment further on that as soon as I get the replacement and then add it to the, to the uh, system. I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to get to the post office to send that thing off. All in all, though, I am pleased with the performance of NextCloud on the Think Center. Uh, one can definitely sense a boost in speed and reliability on a proper Intel platform. The fourth gen i7 might be a little long in the tooth, uh, relatively speaking, but it plows through the server workload given by the next by NextCloud on an Apache-based server. It where where it's going to matter more than anything else is not just you know the cloud storage but there's there's other things to next cloud like the oh there's a document server on there that works sort of the same way as google docs um it's got a fairly reliable i've not had a problem with it a reliable way of managing documents and everything from presentations to spreadsheets i've not tried the spreadsheet thing yet but it seems to be a uh, as far as I'm concerned, a drop-in replacement for Google Drive, which is exactly what I was looking for. You've also got a photo viewer, and then it's got a huge... NextCloud has a huge add-on, uh, community-based and project-based add-on uh, community, and a lot of the add-ons are really useful, everything from... I mean, you can you can run your calendar and your backup your... Uh, contacts and everything to that, which is what I do. The Android and Linux desktop clients that connect to it and do all the syncing, they, they work fantastic. And I've never had a problem. Um, it's not necessarily as brain dead easy as just running everything on Google. But then again, you don't have to worry about NextCloud uh, sending your pictures off to the police and accusing you of being a child child pornography pusher either you know i really look forward to getting a chance to use this i will keep pushing for yeah. its use yeah uh, until we are up and running with it yeah i think i think i will probably start mm, the peer pressure once i've got the other <laughs> drive installed and and then i we get can wait for that yeah I mean, we're, it's fine. It's probably perfectly usable right now. I just would like to see it run 
for a, a month or two just doing what I do with it. And then if the other guys want to play with it, they've also got accounts that they can get on. And there's even a little bit of... We will need some kind of redundancy. Yeah, I mean, with ZFS, you've got cold storage. I've got cold storage backups for both of these servers, you know, so it's... Well, what if the power goes out at your house? Well, I know. I mean... These are things we'll have to get figured out, I suppose. But uh, these are all realities. I suppose they're less of a reality when you rely on something like Google. But I, I think it's worth the sacrifices to get off. Yeah, at of le- at least Bill isn't on PG and E. <laughs> and yeah, the power goes out. We'll have about twenty minutes with my with my uh, APC running. <laughs> Get a generator. Uh, yeah, watch this space. I'm I'm looking into that right now. It's <laughs> my cousin actually puts them in, and he's offering one of the big ones for. Uh, well, I won't say, but it's it's That's considerably less. Yeah, still a lot, but it's a lot. But you know, there's value in being the one guy on the street that's got his house lit up. And air conditioners running in the dead of summer, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that about does it for our biweekly wanderings. Let's move on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something you'd like us to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at http colon slash mint. That should be https colon slash slash mintcast.org. Next episode will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, October 16th, and we have a link to get Mintcast converted to your time zone. Our next live stream it will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on October 8th, and we have a link to convert that to your time zone. And our live stream information is found at mintcast.org slash livestream. Wrapping up, Joe, where can we find you? Well, you can catch me on a couple other podcasts. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show. That's T-L-L-T-S dot org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast. That's linuxlugcast.com. Um, you can send me an email directly, jb at mintcast.org, or you can buy me a coffee on Kofi. Moss? Well, you can find me every week on Full Circle Weekly News, every month on Distro Hoppers Digest. Um, my email is bardmoss at pm.me, and my other information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill? Well, you can email me at bill at mintcast.org. I'm bill underscore H on Discord, at wchauser3 on Twitter, wchauser3 on Facebook as well. And check out my other podcast, Three Fat Truckers. The website is 3ftpodcast.org. And Norbert, who couldn't be with us today, can be reached Norbert at mintcast.org. 
Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Norbert, Londoner, Tony H., and all others for our audio editing. And we still need help there if you'd like to volunteer. Josh Lowe and Bill Hauser for all his work on the website. All their work on the website. Hobstar for our logo. InitRD for the animated Discord logo. Londoner for our time sinks. Bill for our Linode, which runs our website. Archive.org for hosting our audio files. And the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Thanks Clem. Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mintcast.